people of Summit, Summites, Summitians. Someone told me, uh, Summitarians, I like you. I like you people. You people are good people, kind people. It's a joy to uh, have been a part of this for the last three weeks. And alas, now I retreat back to my hermitage in the city. And uh, it was just such a joy. I love, I hope you went to the farmer's market. I saw that on the way in. I thought, man, maybe I should go there and see if Clay wants to teach or something. Um, so glad to be here. Uh, like I said last weekend uh, before I left, I had met as an application talking about peace uh, to bring uh, a little primer book that I wrote for helping people learn to pray and for peace to be um, what's cultivated through prayer. I know for, for many, uh, as I've been a pastor for about uh, 15, 16 years now, um, one of the things that remains so elusive in the lives of people in the church is this sort of longing to grow in our prayer lives, right? Like we hear about it, we hear people that talk about prayer and prayer is, is really hard for us if we're, if we're quite honest with ourselves. And so, um, so that's gonna be in the, um, in the lobby on the way out. You can feel free to pick up that book, which will guide you through that. Um, and it's just a little, a little primer on prayer. Uh, the proceeds will go to Trinity Grace. And uh, one of the things we're really excited about right now in Trinity Grace, sorry, I'm having some cord issues here. One of the things we're really excited about right now is we are... We're, we're using funds right now to help refugees in Iraq uh, who have been displaced, whether it's from Syria or Iraqis, uh, from certain things, ISIS, et cetera, et cetera, who are trying to pick up sort of the shambles of their lives and are trying to provide a meal on the table for their families. So uh, there's an organization there called Preemptive Love that we have fallen in love with that is on the ground in the Middle East and helping uh, not only with heart surgeries, um, but also with uh, starting micro-businesses for these people who have been displaced and have nowhere to go and no way to make, re- uh, no way to, to build economy for their parents to, or for their families to, um, to care for their families. And so anyway, if you want to join us in that, feel free to uh, buy a book on the way out and um, help us with that effort. Uh, so I want you to imagine this morning, I want you to imagine hosting Dr. Oz in your home, right? Great smile, by the way. So comforting. When I watch him on TV, I just want to give him a hug. Um, Such a sweet man. For a friend of mine, uh, this went beyond imagination and was a reality. And so he tells the story of being late into the evening and they begin to shift the focus of their conversation into neurology and how neural pathways in the brain, they by and large determine our behavior from one moment to the next. And you thought you were free, right? These neural pathways like tire tracks over the course of time, when you respond in life, you're deepening these tracks in your brain where the synapses come together and it actually informs how you behave, right? And here's what gets really fascinating in their conversation. As you develop these little neural pathways in your brain, the path of least resistance that help determine your behavior from one moment to the next, as you develop them, neural pathways that you don't use eventually die. In other words, it explains why it's often said of, let's just say, elderly people, oh, that's Hank, he's 85, he's never going to change, that's how Hank is. If your name's Hank and you're 85, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking hypothetical Hank. A- Hank is never going to change. It's because over the course of time, the way in which we choose to live and the things in which we choose to do, they build these tire tracks in our brain where the path of least resistance for a reaction and how we respond in situations, that by and large governs behavior. And today we look at the fruit of the Spirit called patience. And to use Dr. Oz's logic, 
if you're rarely patient in your mind, you will never become patient in your life. If you don't learn how to sort of rewire your brain in such a way that sees life differently, impatience will be something that we deal with for the rest of our lives. I think that's why what happens in the mind will eventually transmit into your life. It's why Paul talks about in Romans 12 that transformation that we're seeking, that where there's brokenness, where there's habits, where there's all of these things that we've just kind of built in these tire tracks in our brains over the course of time. Paul says the key is the, key is the renewal of your mind, Paul says in Romans 12.1. To be transformed is to have your mind rewired, if you will, in such a way. And I think that's why guarding protecting, stewarding, and cultivating your mind is essential to who you are becoming. So we've talked about this Fruit of the Spirit series that we've been in for the last month. And I just want to back up for a moment because I know some of you are saying, what does this Fruit of the Spirit mean? That's religious jargon. How do I even, like, what are you talking about? The Fruit of the Spirit happens through your life when you've nurtured your soul in such a way that the beautiful characteristics of what we see in Jesus begin to push through the soil of your life. And they actually begin to show up in your everyday living. They show up in your work, in your home, at the market, X, Y, Z. They show up all of these places because you have nurtured your life in such a way that the characters of Jesus begin to spill into society. Who, by the way, is longing for people of joy and of peace and of kindness and of patience. I defined fruit of the Spirit last week as this. Fruit of the Spirit are outer signs of abundance cultivated by an inner life with God. So let's not get so complex and philosophical and deep about it. That's all it is. It's, it's nurturing what's inside long enough of what God is doing in you that it begins to all of a sudden have an outer abundance. Fruit of the Spirit is not about manufacturing or somehow like forcing something to happen out here and then it informs your inside. Fruit of the Spirit is to say, take care of the inner life of who you are and surrender it to God every single day. Consent and you will find over the course of your lifetime ways in which God is developing you to be fully human as you were designed to be. Now this is bad news and good news. The bad news is this. Many of us know we have so far to go. To, cons to consistently manifest the characteristics that Jesus shows us in the Gospels. Like we read the teachings of Jesus and we're like, man, lust is really difficult. Anger is really challenging. We think about things like anxiety and we think, man, for me to become like Jesus, that's, gonna, that's, that's quite hard and that's really bad news. And we would often look at that and say, well, if that's the standard, I'm out. Like it's easier for me just to do this thing over here. But the good news is this. The good news is that our God is patient to transform us by grace over the course of a lifetime. But here's the thing, you gotta let him. You gotta let him. Surrender, consent. The way we cultivate the inner life is very different from the way we pursue degrees, from the way we pursue accolades, the way we pursue climbing ladders in life. Those things aren't often attained through cultivating your inner life. It's striving outer, which isn't always a bad thing. I'm not downing that. But the way in which God works in our lives is for us to take seriously the spirit of the living God living in us and allowing God to change us from inside out. So we cap off this series 
I want to talk about the fruit of patience. And as I say that, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I hope he closes in prayer soon because I'm hungry, right? Questions to consider. First question, among your characteristics, if you were to think about people that know you best to lay out, what's the five characteristics that define me? Would patience be in there, right? How would they rank your patience quotient, right? Rather than IQ, how would they rank your PQ? What's your PQ in life? Would that be anywhere close to the top of the list in your life? Another question I'm interested in is what does patience in Galatians 5 really mean? What's Paul actually getting after with this word? Because I want to suggest, and you'll see in a moment, where I think our brand of patience might be a little bit different than what the New Testament is prescribing here. And the third thing is this. How do I become more patient in a society full of noise and disruption and annoyances, right? If you're like me, that's just sort of what really has me often. We live in a society where there's just traffic and disruption and noise and annoyance everywhere that we look. So by the way, if you want to test your PQ, here are some ways you can do it when you travel, right? So a lot of you have sites that you want to see when you go to different cities and different regions of the states or of the world. Let me just give you some things you can do to test your PQ when you're traveling as well. We'll call it patience by city. Anyone from Atlanta, right? Maybe a few of you, maybe none of you. Well, next time you're in Atlanta, take a drive on I-75 during rush hour, right? <laughs> then you'll see how you're doing on your PQ, right? Anyone from LA, right? Patience by city. If you're from Los Angeles and you want to know what your patience is like, take a drive on the 405, well, anytime, and you'll understand what your patience is like. When you're in Chicago, root for the Chicago Cubs. You'll understand then how patient you really are. When you're in Seattle and you're fair-skinned, such as myself, just head to the beach for that tan you always wanted, and we'll see how patient you really are. When you're in Nashville, to test your patience, I dare you to try to find a restaurant that doesn't slather everything in gravy, right? If you can find that, then you're patient. When in New York, if you want to test your patience, head to Madison Square Park on a Saturday in July around noon for lunch at Shake Shack, and then you'll know if you're really patient, right? Or if you're in New York, next time, just attempt to walk the high line with a vision of getting anywhere, and then you'll understand whether or not you're patient. So you can see there are all these certain ways that we interact with life, and we begin to see, well, am I really patient or aren't I? But let's understand what we talk about when we talk about patience. What did Paul have in mind here when he casts a vision for the church to be love and joy and peace and, oh, by the way, patient? What, did, what, was that, what was that about? What was Paul getting at? Well, this particular word, it's the word makrothermia in the Greek. And it's this idea of forbearance, of long-suffering, of self-restraint before action. Let me ask you this. Does this define you? Self-restraint before action. Is that one of the top characteristics of your life? What's interesting about this word is that there are several words in the New Testament used for patience. But there's a certain distinction about this one that makes it unique. The other forms of patience that the New Testament talks about, it has to do with enduring difficult circumstances. That's what other brands of patience in the New Testament are getting at, right? The loss of a job, needing to find a new job to be patient. The growing of herbs in your garden, right? The line of the DMV. All of these things that require endurance in order to get what you are looking for. But makrothemia is a little bit different. This particular word isn't referring to how we orient ourselves towards circumstances or things. This word has to do with how we respond to people. That's the uniqueness of what this word 
is meant to be. In other words, people who challenge us, people who annoy us, people that we perceive are against us. Paul wants us to take seriously as the church how we engage people. And it reveals where you are in spiritual maturity based on how you see people. See, we live in a a world where so much of our lives are inculcated in individualism that we've even applied that to the spiritual life. It's about, well, I I need a relationship with God and I need these things in my life and I need to be centered and and all those things are fine, well, and good. But eventually following Jesus, we realize that other people exist and that our spirituality is not meant to just be some individualized practice, but is actually designed to impinge and move into society in forms of love and joy and peace. That there's no such thing as a spiritual person who is mature, who is not actually manifesting these qualities in their everyday life with the people that they know. That's what it means to move into another level of relationship with God, when you begin to see that other people matter and engaging them in certain ways matters. The people we meet, the people we work with, the people in our home, the people on our street, people is what Paul is getting at in this text. Now let's back up. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I want to bring up an image of of fruit. Um, We didn't do this series in the winter because that would be depressing and we just long to see the sun, right? But in the summer, this is a great time to talk about spiritual fruit because it's, so, uh, it's so about like everywhere we go, we see trees and leaves and all of these things that are beautiful and remind us, oh yes, it's so great to live in the summer. And when we think about summer fruit, we think about a tree. And if this is a metaphor for what Paul is getting at here, that your life is to be a beautiful tree, that because you've watered, not the leaf, but because you've watered the soil, you've begun to manifest these characters, characteristics all over your life. That if we think about it, I think most of us would say, yeah, I want a beautiful life. I want a life, if that's the metaphor, I want to look like that. I don't want to look like I'm sort of drying in like some sort of stick in the middle of winter. I would love to be a beautiful tree that people look at and say, yeah, 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 that's spiritual maturity. That's good that's a good tree. I really like the look of that, right? That's the, probably the first thing most of us think about when it comes to the image of fruit of the Spirit. But I want you to remember this. It's called fruit of the Spirit, not merely so your life can look beautiful with all of these fruit hanging from it. It's called the fruit of the Spirit because eventually God's design for our lives is that other people would pluck the goodness of what God is doing in us. Does that make sense? So it's not about preserving the beauty of who we are alone. It's about saying, I long to be beautiful in God so that other people are refreshed by my life. And I think that's what we see in Jesus. Not someone who's isolated and just having a personal relationship with God, but someone who has said all the way to his crucifixion, pluck the goodness of my life because I'm for you and I want you to flourish, and I want you to know what it means to love God through who I am. And I think that's what God is continually inviting us into, that others who are starving for joy and patience and kindness and goodness and people like that in life which are rare, that we would be the kind of people who have nurtured the soul of our lives, that other people could pluck the goodness of what God has done through us. Does that make sense? And I think that's a challenge. 
I think that's a challenge in our, our day. And I want to tell you two reasons why we seldom find patience in our own lives, maybe in my life only, but I'm assuming you're sort of with me. Are we tracking? Are we here? And then two things that I think are ways forward to cultivate patience. The first thing is this. When we look at reasons that we seldom experience patience, even in our own lives, it's because we live in a world that prioritizes productivity. And we don't just live in a world that prioritizes productivity. We actually live in a world that rewards productivity above all other virtues. This is sort of one of the top virtues in Western society. And it's not all bad. I like productivity. Productivity is a quantifiable amount of work achieved during a specified period of time, right? Easy. An idiot's guide to productivity. The more work per unit of time, the greater your productivity. That's how that works. And there's nothing inherently wrong with productivity. But I can tell you this. When productivity becomes the priority of your life, your identity will hang in the balance of what you can achieve and what you can earn and the goals that you have and have not met. And when this happens, when productivity becomes your preeminent value, it's your greatest priority of what you can achieve and what you can earn, what happens is this, people become objects. And people in our lives get put into one of two camps. People that sort of advance my cause and people who don't. And that's a really crushing framework for someone in our lives to be in. And I think what Paul wants us to, re to be reminded of is that people are not problems. People are not in our way. People are not extras in our little movies who live only to advance our personal dreams. Let me say it like this. Your life is not a little indie film that everyone else in your life are surrounding characters to advance your plot. That's not what we have been invited into. People are gifts. And when we see them as such, I think what it does, and where I'll get to this morning, is that it gives us capacity to become patient. I've never been able to shake this one scene in the middle of Matthew. The first 13 chapters, what you see is this. Here's the sum of the first 13 chapters of Matthew. Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is healing. And Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is healing. There's proclamation, and there's power. There's demonstration, and then there's didactive talk about it. So you have this understanding of Jesus teaching, healing, healing, teaching. Te that's what's going on. It's this beautiful thing of Jesus came to do this. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's demonstrated the kingdom of God, inviting people into it. And then something happens in Matthew 14. And here's what happens. Disruption. Annoyance. Something comes into the pathway of Jesus's mission and it took the form of this. And some of you have been here before where you've been on a beeline, you've been on a track, you've had the goal, you're set into motion, and then this happens. John the Baptist's cousin, he gets word that he's murdered, unjustly, beheaded. And it's a disruption to Jesus's life. And what does he do? Matthew 14 comes along. And instead of teaching healing, he gets away by himself in a boat. Why? To grieve to mourn, to ask questions like, why God? Why? That's what Jesus, I, we often, we often look at, I, I, so my personal framework is that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. This is the classic Christian position. It's my position as well. 
And I think we look at these and we're like, well, yeah, he's, he's God. And what I'm about to read you in a passage, of course he had compassion. But I want you to just consider the humanity of Jesus here. He's been on his mission and just finds out his family member is dead. The one who, by the way, leapt in the womb when they interacted in, in each other's mother's wombs. That's a connection, I'd say, right? That's a deep connection. And he's been murdered. Matthew 14 comes along, and here's what the text says. Now, when Jesus heard this, this news, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns and went ashore, and he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. Now, I have, I have never been able to shake this passage. And I think it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, he was God, you know, compassionate but he was also a man, grieving. This disruption comes in his life. And here are these crowds following him, saying, we don't, we don't care what's happening in your life, Jesus. I, I need my son healed. I, I, got, I got a job issue over here. And can you come tell my mother-in-law X, Y, Z, right? And what does it say Jesus did? He had compassion for them. And he cured their sick. Every time I read this text, I cannot help but think there is none like Jesus. It's incredible. Later in Colossians, Paul tells us that it, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. The fullness of the deity in human form is in Jesus. In other words, some of you walked in here today and you're like, man, like, I just, God is, God is not my friend. I'm afraid of God. God is angry and God is wrathful and I don't want to be anywhere near that. And I'm not saying those aren't components. I don't want to get into the mystery of that, but I will say this. God is the one whom after we've cursed him to his back, he turns his face toward us. God is the one whom after we've rebelled against his love comes running after us with forgiveness. And God is the one whom after we've hit rock bottom in our shame embraces us as a daughter and as a son and cast all of our shame into the bottom of the sea. Let me just say this. God is patient. And so to become patient with others is to become like Jesus. And to become like Jesus is to become like God, which is what it means to be fully human. We were created in God's image. But the problem is, my priority of productivity means that people have become objects in my life and I rarely see them the way Jesus did. They're objects toward my goal, toward what I have going on. And I become very, very impatient. May we see people as gifts and not as objects who merely advance our cause or stand in our way. And the second thing, I think not only do we live in a world that promotes productivity, we live in a world that exalts Efficiency. And in this, word, people, in this world, people become not objects, but, but obstacles to our life. We need to get there. We need to solve it. Now, I'm a three on the Enneagram. If you've ever studied personality theory, I love the theory called the Enneagram. And, and like efficiency is my king. It's my queen. I love to get things done quickly. Now, my wife, her personality profile is excellence. You can imagine us in a marriage. Meaning, like, she does things right I do things fast. The difference is this. I'm fine for settling for a C. She has an A, but she's not ready to turn the paper in because it's not perfect yet, right? That's me and my wife. Like, hilarious combination the two of us are as we laugh at each other. So, like, efficiency and effectiveness, it's a hilarious cocktail for marriage. I, I just want to get things done 
quickly. And in this, people become obstacles because we love efficiency. Now, I'm about to play for you a very peculiar sound. And what I want you to do is I want you to sit comfortably in your soft chair. I want you to close your eyes. Nothing weird's going to happen. But as you close your eyes, I'm going to count down from five. And I just want you to prepare your soul for a little nostalgia, at least for 90% of you in this room. Prepare yourself for a little walk down memory lane. Are we ready? So let's close our eyes. Five, four, three, two, one. The sound of your past. Yes, yes, amen. got mail, everybody. Do you remember having to endure that sound? And can you imagine going, what you know now, can you imagine going back to that sound every single time you wanted to go online? This is the sound of waiting. It's the sound that reminds us just how far we've come in the land of instant gratification the land of instant downloads, the land of ever-expanding territory of bandwidth within an ever-decreasing world of free time, right? Like, that's the sound. Like, we live in a world that runs up escalators. There's something weird about that. We run up escalators, for goodness sake. Most of our agitation in life, most of the reasons that people would not put of your wall of fame your top five characteristics, your epitaph someday, most people would not put, Sally was so patient, and Larry, oh my word, they would just sit all day waiting for it. Like those aren't things that people typically say in our time period, right? Most of our agitation in life is from the reality that we've not gained efficiently what we want, and we're impatient. And people become obstacles to our efficient need to attain. I'll give you an example, <laughs> as if you need any. Um, a few years ago, two years ago, almost exactly to the day, my wife's water broke. Many of you women know what that means, and we men catch on quickly. And so we headed to the hospital on 60th and 10th, where we live in the city, and <laughs> we head into this little room, 10 by 10, tiny, right? little waiting room to get in to evaluate for the doctor to tell you, yes, indeed, your water did break. You're like, well, duh. And so we're waiting for that to get in and make sure everything is, is on pace and on schedule and we're good to go. And so we walk in and in this 10 by 10 room at five in the morning, there is a, a, a beautiful Orthodox Jewish man, tzitzit, tassels, like the full, the full garb on the hat, and he is praying Torah against the wall out loud, right? Now his wife is sitting next to him, like cool as a cucumber, as if like she's done this eight times before, right? Now, next to them, and I can only describe this as what I would call a Seinfeldian moment, is sort of what this is like. Next to them is a Muslim couple, and she is moaning the sounds of the Sahara Desert, right? Some, some sort of animal in, in heat that is just like, 
at its wits end. I mean, in, in so much pain, it's searing to the ear. Now next to her is her husband sitting as if he's done this eight times before as well, right? Now next to them, going around the room, is an Eastern European couple speaking a dialect from which I've never heard. And that was happening in the room. And then next to them is us. And next to us are two beautiful Caribbean nurses who are coming toward the end of their shift. So they're not, they're just excited to get off work and to go home and sleep, I suppose, telling hilarious jokes with a really funny Hispanic janitor. And so I'm looking around and I'm thinking, this is the international cocktail of the world that's all come together and coalesced in this little waiting room of waiting to get our water checked to make sure it was indeed what happened. And it was just one of these moments where you walk in with your spouse. And at that moment, I had like zero desire or vision to be this lovely tree of patience with peaches hanging from my vine. Yes, please come pluck, pluck my patience here, woman. My wife is ready to have a baby, but you first, really, you first, right? It's in those sorts of moments in life that I truly, at the core of who I was in that moment, believe this, I'm more important than you. Everyone's about to have a baby in this room, but ours is a little more important than yours. I know we were the last ones to this room, but you can understand, right? And it's just one of those moments where you find out in life really what your values are, your neural pathways, realizing just how much I, I devalue people because of my efficiency, because of my need to be first, my need to get something done. It is so challenging to be patient within a world that promotes productivity and exalts efficiency as the supreme values in life. I think it explains in part what appears to be an ever-increasing world of individualism, of racism, and of exploitation. Let me just say this. The ministry of Jesus has nothing in common with individualism, with racism, and with exploitation. It has nothing to do with those things. And I will tell you this, the invitation to become a patient person is so dear to the heart of God because when we do that, we begin to see the other. We begin to value them for who they are. And we begin to become people that see life differently. I can tell you this, the world, your work, this neighborhood, this town, your neighbors, everybody in this world are longing for people of patience who see like Jesus did. That despite being on a mission, which is good, there's this disruption and seeing that people exist and that they matter. So how do we cultivate it? Two things really quickly. The first is this. I think to cultivate patience in our time, we have to widen our lens. Widen your lens. What I mean by that is having a daily rule of life where you are giving yourself to the reading of a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Small reading, large reading, doesn't matter. But a moment in time where you have a rule of life before work, before the kids get up, before whatever you start, the freneticism of your day, that you are reminded of a greater story. And it doesn't make your story minimized. It invites your story into something so much bigger than it could be on its own. In other words, your micro story has a place in the macro kingdom of God, but it's a micro story and it matters, but it's not the only story in the world. Other people's stories matter too.
and the kingdom of God hold them all together of advancing God's gospel in the world. So do you have a rule of life? This isn't about religion. It's, not a, it's, it's about formation, really. It's about carving new neural pathways in your brain in order to see life differently. So do you start your day by widening your lens? Or is it so narrow that all you have is your to-do list, what you need to get done, and that's, you wake up and that's, that's it. That's your goal for existence. But you start by widening it and seeing the bigger panorama in the world. Second thing is this, not just widening your lens, but sharpening your focus. Sharpening your focus. In other words, understanding what, what really matters. My problem in the hospital room was that I didn't see that these people are human just like we are. And I somehow think that I'm more important all the time. I usually think I'm the most important room, person in any room I walk into. Most of us do that, right? Sharpening our focus to see that the person standing in front of you is the most important person in the world right now. They matter. People are gifts. Let me just ping up a slide. Speaking of sharpening your focus, I want you to imagine your life as a portrait. I want you to imagine seeing life in this way. And if you could see life, if this represented your life, when you take a photo, you eventually have to find a focus. You eventually have to key in on just a few things and bring them into focus out of the background of all the other things happening, which aren't bad things. They're just other things. And I would just ask, which part of the image in your life right now would you say you are constantly bringing into focus because it's your highest value? Is it your agendas and your goals, which are really good? They're not bad. They're great. They're given by God. But are people simply background noise in your life? You'll bring them into focus when they advance your cause. But if they don't do that, they just kind of, they need to stay in the background, out of focus. They're just characters in my play. Because I think that's often how we are in life. I have found one of the only practices to grow in, in order to truly begin to see people as gifts and not as obstacles, not as opponents, not as objects in our way, is to pray for them by name. It's called intercession. It's an old classic tradition in the Christian story of actually thinking about the people that annoy you most, thinking about the people you perceive are against you right now, people that you think are somehow keeping you from what it is that you feel called to. And what would it begin to really pray for them by name? And not to just pray for them by name, but to bless them. Something happens when we pray with specificity. Something happens to us, really. We begin to see that when we encounter, you know, Sandra for all of her rage against us at work, we realize there is so much more going on in her life than what I'm experiencing right now that has led to this moment. And then we think about Larry and his temper tantrums, or we think about so-and-so. We, th- we remember all of the baggage that we all have when we walk in the door that we bring with us. And it, it just gives us the capacity. It doesn't excuse things, but it gives the capacity to be patient. It gives the capacity to seek to understand before being understood. And I think, that, I think that the world wants that. I think that people are longing for people who see them, who are patient with them, who will pray for them. That people are not objects or obstacles. And to become like Jesus 
is to see the crowd not for their annoyances, but for the beautiful image of God that they are. And that takes a deep spiritual work. That's not like, now I'm going to go be patient. It's like, no, no, no. Surrender. Surrender your story. Surrender your goals. And rethink what it means to widen your lens and to sharpen your focus. I want to pull a scripture out as the band comes forward just to read and to consider as a prayer as we move into this last song. I want to read it out loud over us and then invite us into a prayer. I love this passage out of Colossians. Paul says, lead lives worthy of the Lord. Worthy. And may you endure with everything, with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And I want you to consider trying this prayer on this morning as we go into this song. It's simply this. God, would you widen my lens to notice your kingdom? the greater story through which your story fits into? And would you sharpen my focus to love your people? Like, What if that was our prayer today? What, what if that was your prayer all week this week? And you wrote that down, and every morning you started just sitting quietly or reading the text and just saying, God, widen my lens to the panoramic of your kingdom and sharpen my focus to see your people. That's a good prayer. It's a very good prayer for us as the church to really think through what it means for us to be the people of God. Amen.